Good morning. Man, I am happy to see you guys too. I, I really am. It's so good to see everybody coming out. And, uh, you know, we need to be careful, cautious, safe, healthy, uh, but bold as well. So I'm glad you're here today. And it's so good to see everybody. It's so good to see Diane and Larry back there. You know, I was, uh, we were talking, we as a church have probably supported them over 40 years uh, in Haiti. And how many people have uh, come to know the Lord uh, through that? Many of our people have been down there. I've been there several times, and it's always great to see you guys. And bring the peanut butter, because uh, for some reason, they're short this year on their donations, and they, uh, this is life and death in many cases. So good to see them, and good to see uh, Dan back. Man, we miss Dan. Uh, Dan and, uh, has been off for a couple of weeks with their new baby, Aerie, and uh, she's doing great. But good to see Dan back leading us in worship, and, uh, and it's good to see all of us be able to worship together. And if you are out there, I know our broadcast is delayed a little bit this morning, uh, but uh, it's good to see everybody out in uh, Facebook or internet land, wherever it is out there, and however we get to you. Good to have you with us today. We're going to conclude a series, been in for a few weeks now, called Some Good News. And it may sound a little bit strange, but today I want to talk about hell. Uh, and the good news of hell is that you don't have to go there. It's about the only good news I can think about in hell. But we're going to talk realistically about that as we kind of uh, uh, wrap this series up and as we balance uh, the time that we talked about heaven, we have to talk about hell. You know, I've never been there, but they say a mile and a quarter off the coast of San Francisco, there's an island you've probably heard of called Alcatraz. Alcatraz was in operation from 1934 to 1963 as a federal penitentiary, and it held the most dangerous criminals in the country. Um, people like Al Capone, Robert Franklin Stroud, who was called the Birdman of Alcatraz, James Whitley Bugler, and also Mickey Cohen was there. And it was considered to be the very worst prison in the country. I mean, it was a place where people said when they left the mainland and they went to Alcatraz, they left behind all hope that they had. The discipline was as severe as it possibly could be. Prisoners were just uh, slowly go insane under the torture of the daily regimen that they had and the undeviating routine. But maybe it was the reflections of inmate number 117, a man by the name of George Machine Gun Kelly, who really summed up how people felt about Alcatraz. And he wrote this on his jail cell. He wrote, nothing could be worth this. Nothing could be worth this. So that's how bad he thought it was. You know, for many people, Alcatraz was literally hell on earth. And since we've been talking for a few weeks now about heaven and about how great it is and what it might be like, I just don't think we can leave this whole experience without taking a little bit of time to talk about hell too. You know, it's kind of amazing to me that almost 90% of people believe in heaven, but only about 60% of people actually believe in hell. And it's in my also amazing to me in my observation that many people are convinced that they or their loved ones will just automatically go to heaven, but they make no planning or no preparation for that. How many places do you go to that you don't make any preparation for, and yet you expect to get there, you expect to make it? Obviously, heaven is a place that we all long to be. We all expect to go there, but do we really expect everybody to go there? I don't think we realistically can say that. So we've talked about what heaven could be like based on the scriptures, so I want to be honest with you today, and I want to see what the Bible also says about hell. And the goal today is not to be negative, the goal is not to be, uh, you know, to scare anybody or condemn anyone, but, but actually the goal is to keep people from going there. 
I think the more educated that we are about hell, the more likely we are, first of all, to be committed to our own faith, but secondly, to be concerned about other people as well. You know, it's kind of selfish of us to, to know about a place that nobody wants to go and be told a lot of people are going to go there and do nothing at all to prevent that from happening. So to tell us about hell, the Bible uses several different words to describe it. Now, to be honest, it's not real clear if they all describe hell in a different way or they're all describing different areas in hell. That's a little bit vague for anyone. But there are several words used in the Bible. The first word that used is the word abyss or bottomless pit. Uh, you know, we've all had a sense of falling. We all have a fear of falling, right? Out of control. But could you imagine falling and there not being any bottom? To never reach the bottom, to be totally out of control. When the Bible describes hell as an abyss, it says that it's a place of punishment for the spiritual beings who are the enemies of God. Here's what it says in Revelation 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him. So clearly Satan is chained and thrown into the bottomless pit. Another word the Bible uses for hell is the word tartartus, which is described as total darkness. If you've ever been anywhere uh, in, in a room, there, there's no light. You can't see your hand in front of your face. There's no shadows. There's no glimpses of anything at all. That's total darkness, a little bit terrifying. But the Bible says that's where sinful angels are being held until judgment. Another word the Bible uses is the word Hades. That's a Greek word. In the Hebrew, the word is Sheol. The words are pretty much the same. Obviously, the Old Testament would be Sheol. The New would be Greek. But it's, uh, it's called the land of the dead. And that's the place where the souls of lost people are held until the final day of judgment. Revelation chapter 20 says, The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Another word that Jesus used that was pretty commonly used is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna is described as the final resting place, the final phase of torment for Satan, his demons, and all lost people. And so it's a pretty general term that was used there. And to be descriptive of that, Gehenna was an actual place. It was a deep ravine that was south of Jerusalem in that day. In the Old Testament days, wicked kings like Ahaz and Manasseh would actually take their own children and they would throw them into this valley or they would offer them on sacrifices there and they would burn other human sacrifices to the false gods of Baal and Molech. Later on in Jesus' day in the New Testament, Gehenna was a city dump. It was outside the city. It was a place where all the trash and the garbage from the city was thrown, along with any unclaimed human body, victims of, of, of uh, crucifixion, homeless people, uh, no, no family would be thrown into this valley, and with the trash and everything, a constant fire would burn. And so whenever they would use that term of Gehenna and they would describe that, it would pre be pretty vivid and horrendous of, of nobody wanted to smell or be anywhere near that area. It was a horrible place. Now, in addition to that, the Bible uses several other generic terms to describe hell, like the lake of fire, outer darkness, and the place of torment. And so the Bible says a lot about hell, and hell is every bit as real as heaven 
just like heaven will be wonderful beyond our imagination. Remember, we said we have to have trust and imagination to think about heaven because it's beyond what we can comprehend. But also, hell will be horrible as well beyond our imagination. And nobody wants to, to go there, but, but it will be just that bad. And just like heaven will be eternal, so also will hell be eternal as well. You know, a few years ago, I, I heard a, a theory being bannered about called uh, annihilation. And annihilation is the belief that unbelievers will not experience an eternity in suffering in hell, but still would be extinguished uh, after death, or they would suffer a while, and then after that, they would cease to exist. Now, that, that's a theory that's thrown out there because people say that surely someone shouldn't suffer for eternity. It would be okay to, be, uh, to have joy for eternity, but surely you shouldn't suffer indefinitely. Now, that's kind of hard for us to understand because then we also read what the Bible says about um, a person, if they were to be cast into a literal lake of burning lava, they would instantly be consumed. However, the lake of fire the Bible talks about is both the physical and spiritual realm. And again, we are not just a physical body uh, that would be consumed. A spirit cannot be consumed by physical fire. The whole idea of annihilation, I guess, is some consolation to people who might go there to think it wouldn't be forever, but, but the Bible doesn't teach that. It says in Matthew 25, then they, the unsaved, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And in Revelation 9, during those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. So as the Bible teaches, just as heaven is an endless, joyful pleasant experience, hell in turn would be endless, hopeless, horrifying eternity. Last week as we talked about heaven, uh, concluded that, that part of the series, we talked about the fact that there would be rest in heaven, how that we are exhausted and we long for the place of rest, and the Bible speaks of, of resting from our labors, but there will not be any rest or peace in hell itself. Revelation chapter 14 says, they will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of His wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. So it's interesting what it says, there's no rest, no end, and also what is intriguing there is that phrase in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And I'm going to come back to that in just a few minutes to kind of address what that might, might mean. But let's ask the question, this horrible place that was created, who was it intended for? Why would God even make a place like hell? The Bible tells us that hell was created. It is a part of creation. And I believe that hell was created even before uh, the creation of our earth, before humanity came into the scene. Why? Because the place that hell was created for was designed for the devil and his angels, the beast and false prophets. The Bible tells us we'll be there. But I also believe that, that hell, when, although it was not designed for people, that it well, will be the eternal destiny for the wicked, the disobedient, and for all those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. This horrible place that was designed for Satan and his angels is going to be the home, not just of those who are wicked. We think about extremely wicked people, and we can probably list those people. I'll list you some at the end of the message a little bit and see what you think about that. 
but also for those who will not accept Jesus as Savior and Lord of their lives. I think if there's one thought that's most difficult for us to wrap our heads around, it might be that concept. That it's not just wicked, evil people that are horrible here, but it's good people. Good people who will not accept God's way to salvation. You know, whenever Jesus sent his disciples out to share the gospel, he told them, uh, told them this about the towns where they would, would go to, the people who would not respond to the gospel. He said, truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. So what he's saying is for people who are not receptive to the gospel, who will not accept Jesus Christ, it will be even worse for them because they've heard the gospel and they've rejected the gospel than it would be for Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know that they were destroyed by fire because of their wickedness. So it's not just for the Hitlers of the world, people we might just think would be there, but also for those who do not respond to the gospel and give their life to Christ. So that, let me kind of summarize up some quick th- thoughts about hell that, that we kind of gather from those, those scriptures. First of all, hell's a literal place. Hell is not a place in one's mind. It's not just a theory. It's not just an idea. It's a literal place. Secondly, it's a place of memory. It's a place of memory, and, and if there are people who hear a message about hell on earth but never respond to that, I believe in hell they will remember that message. It will come back to haunt them as far as what they heard. Thirdly, it's a place of torment, obviously. It's a place, fourthly, of unquenchable fire and thirst of separation from God and a place of unspeakable misery, sorrow, and anger and bitterness. And then fifthly, it's an eternal place with no escape. But I guess here's the bottom line about hell that people don't understand is you will either spend eternity in heaven or in hell, one or the other. There is no other option. There's not like you're just going to cease to exist at death. If you believe what the Bible has to say, the idea of, of just being extinct whenever you stop breathing is not reality. We are going to spend eternity one place or the other, and it all depends not on our goodness here. But it all depends on what we do with Jesus while we're here. In Revelation chapter 5, it says, Then one of the angels said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. So here the writer, John, is describing His revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, what he's seeing, and he's seeing Jesus described as both the lion and the lamb. That's kind of an interesting contrast when you think about it, because a lion and a lamb don't seem to be very similar, do they? The lion is the king of the jungle. The lion eats everything. I've seen lions eat crocodiles and elephants and antelope and any and everything. The lion is the boss of the jungle. It has its say over everything. But the lamb, on the other hand, is the gentlest of creatures. They're harmless. Nobody's afraid of a lamb. A lamb is gentle, sweet, kind, doesn't bite, doesn't do anything. Lambs are harmless. So how can Jesus be a lion and a lamb at the same time? And I think it's very obvious in how we view him. When Jesus was on the earth, he was a lion to the religious leaders. When he was 12 years old, he took them all in the temple. He had no fear of them. And he talked to them, and he taught them, and he, you know, he corrected them. Later on, when he became an adult, 
Uh, he was ruthless. He whipped them with a cord. I mean, he had no problem with them. He was a lion. He was the king. But when Jesus was here, he was also a lamb to children and women, to poor people and sinners. He was a lamb to them. That's how he re- reacted to them. Now, when Jesus returns, the disobedient are going to see Jesus as a lion. He's going to come in all power and all authority. He's going to come riding on a white horse, the Bible says. He's going to be a victor. He's going to be the lion of Judah. But believers will see him as a lamb. John chapter 5, or chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So the Bible talks about the wrath of God is being poured out. And the lion or the lamb, the way we see Jesus, will be depending upon our relationship with him. He will come as a victor and a lion to those who are lost. He will be a lamb to those who are saved. You know, what I've noticed today in our world is that people don't talk a lot about the wrath of God. And I know, I know preachers, you know, we get it. You all just talk about love. You don't talk enough about the wrath of God and, and hell and everything. So here's, a, here's the sermon on hell the, to, to, to tell you that we, we believe in that strongly, all right? I believe that we ought to focus on the love of God. The Bible says the love of Christ compels us. God wants us to focus primarily on his love. But if his love doesn't motivate you, then his wrath should. It's kind of like with your kids, you know? We have four kids. When they were small, we really wanted them to respond because we were kind and loving and just, you know, be obedient. But then they didn't. We, we tried to be a lamb, but then the lion had to come out sometime. And we had to be harsh on them. We had to punish them in that. And I think God wants us to be compelled by his love, but he wants us, if not, to be motivated by the wrath of God. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God under feet, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Bible is very clear that God is a just God. A just God means that he wants justice, but it also means that justice cuts both ways, right? We know that to be true. You know, we say today, what do we want? We want justice in our world. We want justice. What I've found is that more people want mercy than really want justice. We know we deserve justice, but we want mercy from God. God will be merciful to those who are in Christ, but he will bring justice on those who are not. I've also noticed that the victim loves justice, but the guilty hates justice. The guilty resents when justice is brought upon them. And some people resent God for his promise of justice. And in fact, some people accuse God of being cruel if God does what he says he's going to do and what his law requires. How is that being cruel if he is just being a God of integrity and he does exactly what he says? The Bible tells us that our disobedience brings about the wrath of God. The wrath of God. A few moments ago, I read about the wrath of God, and we talked about the cup of God's wrath. I want to address that in a second. But there are two types of God's wrath. God has a passive wrath. And God's passive wrath, He tells us all about His will and what He wants us to do. But He gives us freedom to disobey that. We're living today in the day, I believe, of God's passive wrath. 
And we might see some things come down on our world, but most of us, we have freedom to do whatever we want, and our world is certainly doing that. God allows you to do whatever you want in spite of His commands. Currently, it seems like God is powerless, doesn't it? Currently, it seems like God's being the lamb, you know, He's just being loving and permissive and letting anything happen. But if we take advantage and we abuse God's passive wrath, and if we ignore His authority and we abuse the grace of God, then the second part of God's wrath will kick in, His active wrath. And we see the active wrath of God. I read a few moments ago about Sodom and Gomorrah. God reached a point where His passive wrath was up to here, and so God brought the active wrath down upon those two cities, and we've seen that happen before in the past. God will only allow so much, and God knows where that line is, but you know, I have to believe our culture must be pushing the line, pushing the line. And if you're a parent and you know what I'm talking about, and you know where that line is that you just get finally pushed past, I think God's like that, lot like that as well because we are parents. You know, we'll let our kids get away with certain things, and when they hit that line, you know, it's all over, right? The act of wrath kicks in. God's a good parent. Romans chapter 2 says, but because of your stubbornness, and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When His righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. You know, I believe that that many people don't understand this passive and active wrath of God, and I think many people think they're actually getting away with sin. In fact, the Bible says there'll be a time when people will say, well, nothing's happened yet. (laughs) Must not going to happen. Jesus isn't going to come back. It's never going to end just like it is. We're deceiving ourselves. Nobody's getting away with anything. The Bible says that we are storing up wrath against ourselves, and that one day God will settle accounts. I read a few moments ago about this cup of God's wrath. You know, when you put something in a cup, there's only two ways to get it out, right? You either drink it or you pour it out. It's drunk or it's poured out. Jesus has drunk the cup of wrath for those who are believers. Jesus said, I got this. I got this for you. But if he does not drink the cup of God's wrath for you, then the wrath of God will be poured out on you. Maybe an analogy is like coffee. I don't drink coffee. Not sure why anybody does, but people drink coffee. I've seen people drink coffee, and then I've seen them spill coffee on them, and I think it hurts more to have it spilled on you than it does to drink it. I don't know why. I don't know why. But if it's hot, you can drink it, but if you pour it on you, it'll scald you. And if Jesus drinks the cup of wrath for us, he absorbs that. But if it's poured out upon us, It destroys us. So either Jesus is going to settle accounts with God for you and drink the cup of wrath, or God's going to settle accounts for you with His wrath and His anger on the day of judgment. And hell is a way that God settles accounts finally with those who reject Jesus. Here's the other thing I think interesting is that I never thought about this, that hell belongs to God, not Satan. We almost have this idea in our our mind that, oh, you know, God, God's just in heaven, and Satan owns hell, and he's going to rule over hell, and he's going to do all this stuff in hell. Satan doesn't rule over anything. He's going to be tormented in, in hell. 
If there are stages of torment, his will be worse than anyone there. A few moments ago, I read a scripture that says that people will suffer in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. I'm not sure I ever really put my head around that thought, that people in hell will experience Jesus as a lion with his wrath, but they will see him being a lamb to his people, and that will increase the suffering. Remember the story that Jesus told, I preached on it a few months ago, about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Has the rich man in torment, but he sees Lazarus being comforted. There's a great gulf between them that can't be crossed either way, but those in, in torment could see those in comfort. It's kind of interesting to think about that. And maybe from that we can draw this thought that you're going to be looking at Jesus for eternity either with joy or regret, either in punishment or in blessing. You know, God's given us the invitation and the ability to respond. He's done everything. He's not willing anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So I oftentimes wonder, how in the world could people genuinely blame God if they reject the offer that he has done? How could anyone say that God isn't fair if they truly were informed and knew about God? And whether we like it or not, one day this earth, as we know, it's going to cease to exist. Jesus is going to return. We're all going to be gathered to be judged. Revelation chapter 20 talks about that. Then I saw a white throne and him who was seating on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up its dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So the revelation of John, he saw that there was a, a, what we call the white throne judgment, that everyone who has ever lived will be there. He talks about the books are going to be open, and the dead will be judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So God is not ignoring everything. God's keeping account of our lives, account of our sins, our obedience, storing up wrath against the sin of people. And you know, there are a lot of books, or have to be a lot of books, or really big books, one or the other, because there's a lot of people, and there's a lot of sin. And those books are going to be open, but you know, it, it says there's also another book. I would say it's a smaller book, probably. And that book is not filled with the sins or accounts of people's lives, but it's filled with the names of people who have asked Jesus to come and empty their cup of sin and wrath. The Bible says that their names are recorded in the book of life. And those two books will be compared, and those whose name are in the book of life will be exempted from the wrath of God that will come upon those who are written, whose sins are written in these other books. And they alone will be admitted to eternal life, and everyone else will be thrown into the lake of fire, which is hell, along with the devil and his angels. And you see what an unpopular message that is today, how no one likes to hear that. But the good news is, we don't have to experience that. We don't have to worry about that, and we shouldn't want that for anybody else. I hear people criticize God for sending people to hell, you know? But the reality is that God doesn't send anybody to hell. They send themselves to hell. God's done everything he could possibly do to prevent anyone from going to hell. But if we say no to him, then the justice, the integrity of God leaves him no choice. 
Again, like a parent who promises punishment to a child, and then because he, even if he doesn't want to, you have to follow through to maintain your integrity. You, you can't just lie like that, and God doesn't lie. He will do what he says. We choose, and God gives us what we choose. And God can put anybody, let anybody go into heaven that he wants and, and, and do what he wants. Why? Because heaven's his place. It's his house. And he has the right to choose who goes in and who doesn't, just like you do in your house. All of us probably have a house on our door, uh, a door on our house, right? And probably on that door, you got a lock and you don't let everybody into your house. Some people you don't let in and you decide who gets to come in. Heaven's God's house and he's already decided in advance and anyone who will, whosoever will, can. I think people need to stop criticizing God for letting them choose their own eternity and start asking themselves why in the world they wouldn't accept the offer that God's made. That's why people need to think about eternity, because Jesus can and will save anyone. In Romans chapter 10, the Bible says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Many people who have committed horrible acts and crimes have later on become believers in their li- later in their life. And as hard as it might be for us to imagine, God could forgive them if Christ, they've come, Christ has come to their lives and he's drunk their cup of wrath for them, we have to believe they'll be there. Let me tell you some of those names you might recognize. Ever heard of a man named Ted Bundy? Ted Bundy was a serial killer and a rapist who killed at least 30 people. He was executed in 1989, but before that happened, it's pretty credible. I believe James Dobson, focused on the family, was the guy that went in and ended up talking to him and maybe even led Ted Bundy to the Lord. It's hard for us to accept, isn't it? Ever heard of a man named Jeffrey Dahmer? Jeffrey Dahmer was an atheist, a pedophile, a cannibal, a mass murderer. He was killed by a fellow prisoner in 1994. Justly deserved, right? More than likely in our eyes. But before he died, supposedly, according to good sources, Jeffrey Dahmer gave his life to the Lord. Ever heard of a man named David Berkowitz? Better known as Son of Sam. I remember that story. He terrorized New York, in uh, upstate New York, in the summer of 1977. He killed six people and wounded several others, shot them as they sat in their car at night. Currently, he's serving six consecutive life terms in prison. But David Berkowitz gave his life to the Lord. He doesn't like that term, Son of Sam. That was his terroristic days. He calls himself the Son of Hope. He's a very outspoken Christian who is ashamed of his past, and rightly so, right? Knowing he deserves to never be free outside, but inside. According to sources, he's given his life to the Lord. You know what? You may not have a hard time believing that those men could be forgiven and might one day be in heaven. I think that's a challenge for any of us. And all of us would say, man, I'm a lot better person than that. But you know what? Our sin that has not been forgiven will keep us out of heaven. The Bible says only those and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's why I think it's so important that we know the pros of heaven and the cons of hell. We understand that for ourselves as well as other people too. And I think actually understanding and believing in hell can drive us to Jesus very clearly. I read a story this week about a man named Dr. Morris Rawlings. He was a heart surgeon and a very proud, professed atheist. 
He wrote a book uh, entitled Beyond Death's Door in which he talks about his practice, but he talks specifically on an encounter with one of his patients who died on the table. Sure, he had a lot who did that, but they would often bring them back. And Rawlings had always thought that death was nothing more than a painless extinction, that whenever you died, it was all over. But this patient, a 47-year-old mail carrier, was brought back to life by resuscitation. And when he did that, he was terrified, and he was screaming, and he said, please don't stop, I'm in hell. And Rawlings said that he had a grotesque grimace expressing sheer horror on his face, His pupils were dilated, he was perspiring, he was trembling, his air was literally standing on end. And Rawlings said that no one who was there could doubt that this patient was actually in a place called hell. He was experiencing hell. And when he came back, the patient asked the doctor to pray for him. Now remember, Rawlings was an atheist, but I mean, he was also compassionate in this way. So he made made up a fake prayer to a a God he didn't believe in. He prayed to God that he did not believe in for this man on the table. And the man actually survived. But it was after it was all over, he began to reflect. And he realized that there was a double conversion, that this make-believe prayer had actually converted not only the patient, but the doctor as well. And he went on to be a, a believer. And he wrote this book, convinced that there is a God and that there is a hell. You know, I don't know what it would take to convince someone of how serious hell is and how real it is, but I would hope that God would touch your heart today so that you would have no doubt. Even if you were a skeptic, an atheist, if you're with us today, you're hearing it online, that you don't have to figure it out on your own, that you would believe simply what the Bible has to say, and you would decide to follow Jesus. If you have any questions about that, or if you want to talk about your next step in following Jesus, I would love to have that conversation with you. Everything lays on the line. Eternity is on the line with that. And you know what? We can only have hope. We can only have a promise of heaven through Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. And I want to segue into that that very thing this morning as we go to our time of communion. And when you came in, hopefully you picked up one of the little kits out there just a few moments, we'll share that together. But right now, let's have a word of prayer and ask God's blessing upon the bread and the cup. Father, we come to you this morning, and, and Lord, uh, it's not pleasant to talk about the things we've talked about, God. There's no joy in anyone's heart to think about hell, but the reality is that we have to acknowledge that as, as much as we do heaven. God, we know that you have no joy in seeing people lost, that you have joy in see, seeing people won and saved. And Lord, may we share that joy. Father, I pray that each of us would cling to you and run to you, Lord. God, that, that we would give our, the cup of our lives to, to Jesus to drink on a daily basis, that we would maintain our relationship with you, Lord, through Christ. And that, Lord, one day we will truly see you in your home. And Lord, I thank you that Jesus did everything he could and, and should for us, Lord, so that we might be saved. And Just now as we take of this bread that reminds us of the body of Christ, drink of this cup that that symbolizes the blood of Jesus for us, that we might rejoice and be glad for the love that you've shown. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.